Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the eClinical Medicine In Conversation With podcast. I'm Charlotte Robottom, Senior Editor eClinical Medicine, which is a part of the Lancet Discovery Science. Each month we'll be interviewing an author of a paper published in our journal to give them an opportunity to provide a deeper discussion of their research. We're joined today by Julie Vivaldi from Queen Mary University of London, and she'll talk to us about the findings of a recent study comparing the long-term symptoms reported by people with different types of acute respiratory infection, which we'll be referring to as ARIs. Thank you, Julia, for joining us and welcome to the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure. As we said, you've recently published a paper with us and that's brilliant and we're really keen to dig a little bit more into that. So let's kick off with a bit about yourself and your research interests. So could you tell us what led you to study the long-term symptoms of ARIs? So I got into COVID research a little by chance. When the COVID-19 pandemic struck, I was working as an assistant editor for the Lancet Journals, as you will remember. And it was um, it was an intense period. We had nonstop publications on COVID. And after 18 months of editing these papers and witnessing how the research community was responding to the pandemic, I was very keen to see what life would be like on the other side. So I joined the Covidence UK study as a statistician and epidemiologist. Now, this study was launched at the start of the pandemic to gain a better understanding of COVID-19 in the community, as opposed to in hospitals, which is where the initial research was focused. And the study has follow-up data on more than 18,000 people, of whom 8,000 are still responding to questionnaires, which is absolutely brilliant. And within this role, I'm doing a PhD on the post-acute phase of the pandemic, which basically means the legacies of COVID that we will be living with for some time to come. And obviously, as part of this, I've been looking at long COVID. Now, long COVID is of huge interest for many reasons. One is the vast scale of the problem. So the speed and spread of the pandemic has led to millions of people developing the condition across the world over a really short period of time. And many of these people are still living with their symptoms to this day. But another reason that long COVID is of interest is because it's a really clear example of how infections that we expect to resolve themselves quickly can instead linger. So long COVID is part of a group of conditions called post-infection syndromes, which describes symptoms that can last for weeks, months, or even years after the acute infection has passed. And these conditions aren't new, but they are poorly understood and they're under-researched. This is now beginning to change because of long COVID and particularly because of the people living with long COVID. It was they who coined the term long COVID to describe their experiences and they fought extremely hard to raise awareness of their condition. So these reasons and many others are why it's so important to study this condition. However, our study also collects data on symptoms of other ARIs, which we identified by requiring a negative SARS-CoV-2 test. And this gave us the opportunity to look at the long-term effects of COVID, but also of other ARIs and thus post-infection syndromes more generally. Thank you for summarising the study for our listeners. Uh, Really interesting to hear about your personal history and definitely a strong rationale there to compare kind of COVID post-sequelae and non-COVID ones. So your study compared symptoms experienced with COVID-19 versus other ARIs. So could you summarise the key findings of your work? So the initial focus of the analysis was actually just to characterize long COVID. We were interested in the symptom profiles of people more than four weeks after a SARS-CoV-2 infection. 
The problem is you can't characterize long COVID in a vacuum. So one of the key problems that COVID researchers face today is a lack of appropriate controls. So how can you understand the levels of fatigue, for instance, experienced by people with long COVID without taking into account the levels of fatigue experienced by the general population, particularly in the middle of a stressful event such as a pandemic? So for this reason, we looked at the prevalence of 16 possible long COVID symptoms in three different groups. So people with a previous SARS-CoV-2 infection, people reporting other acute respiratory infections, and people with no reported infections during follow-up. And to make these groups as comparable as possible, we compared their symptoms at the same time point, so January 2021. So the COVID part, the analysis really focuses on wild-type infections in unvaccinated people, which is a really important group in long COVID research. And the symptoms we considered were based on symptoms that were common in long COVID, and they ranged from some of the most widely reported ones, such as breathlessness or fatigue, but also some less commonly reported ones, such as hair loss. And our key finding was that we found that all of these symptoms were more common in people with a previous SARS-CoV-2 infection than in people with no infections, despite the fact that the vast majority of our participants had never reported long COVID. But this finding wasn't unique to COVID. So again, almost all of the symptoms considered were also more common in people who'd had another acute respiratory infection when compared with people with no reported infections. So this really hinted towards the existence of not just long COVID, but other kinds of long infections such as long flu or a long cold. And we also found that there may be differences in the kinds of long lasting symptoms that people experience after these different infections. When comparing long-term symptoms after COVID with long-term symptoms after other ARIs, we found that people with previous COVID were much more likely to report problems with their sense of taste or smell, which shouldn't come as a surprise, but also more likely to report dizziness or lightheadedness. And I think if we'd had a greater number of participants for this particular analysis, we would have pulled out more differences, as our findings also suggested greater problems with memory and concentration. So basically the brain fog that people commonly talk about, as well as a higher risk of hair loss. I think um, it's really important to note that we focus predominantly on the prevalence of symptoms rather than their severity or time to recovery. So this means that we don't yet have evidence that the long-term symptoms experienced after non-COVID infections have the same severity or duration as long COVID. Great. Thank you for that. It's really interesting to see that evidence on such a broad set, set of symptoms that we might not expect. So you've kind of alluded to this already, but were the findings you've described as expected or were there some surprises in there? For example, did you expect to find that non-COVID ARIs might also lead to long-lasting health effects? And why do you think that this condition has mostly been overlooked so far? So there were definitely some surprises. In terms of COVID, we certainly expected to see a higher symptom burden after COVID compared with people with no infection, but the strength of the association across all symptoms was compelling, particularly if you consider that the median time since infection was 10 months, which is, you know, quite a long time to recover. And even if we restricted the analysis to people who had never reported long COVID, we still found increased prevalence for half of the symptoms that we looked at. And I think this paints such a strong picture of the potential underreporting of this condition. For non-COVID respiratory infections, I was certainly expecting to see some symptoms come out as being 
more common than when you compare with no infection. So for instance, I think many of us may have had a cough that lasts for much longer than the other symptoms, but I wasn't expecting as many symptoms as we found. And bear in mind that on average, these people with non-COVID infections in our study were reporting their symptoms 11 weeks after the infection, so nearly three months later. And I think one of the reasons that we find this so surprising is because on average, you know, we will experience two or three colds a year. So someone in their 30s will probably have had at least 60 colds. And if you've recovered well from these colds and your family and friends have all recovered well from their colds, that gives you quite a nice sample size. So it's easy to expect these experiences to be true for everybody. But most of us still don't have this certainty with COVID because it's still quite a new disease. So for instance, I've had it once as far as I know, and I think I recovered fairly well, but I definitely don't feel that that's enough evidence to say that I'll recover well if I get it again. And I think that may be why our findings on non-COVID infections got so much attention. You know, for many of us, they were surprising because they don't reflect our lived experience. But for those people who do struggle to recover, this study helps to validate what they personally have been experiencing. Thank you. You make a really brilliant point there about lived experience and how these types of data are really validating for people. You also mentioned that these findings got a lot of attention, which they certainly did, and that's absolutely brilliant to see. So with that, could you comment on the wider implications of the work? So maybe in simple terms, what does this mean for the general population and how we view the after effects of milder conditions such as the common cold? The key implication for me is that it's important not to take recovery from mild infections for granted. So COVID has already shown us that recovery from a mild infection is not always a given, but we really need to extend this awareness to other types of respiratory infections. Since the publication of our paper, I've been contacted by people saying that it can take them more than a month to recover from what others consider to be a normal cold, you know, something not even worth taking a day off work for or cancelling your plans for. And even if these weeks of recovery might not become the years of recovery that some people experience after COVID, they will still have a huge impact on your quality of life. So what we can do more widely is just to be respectful of others, as we were during the acute phase of the pandemic, and be aware that the people around you may be more vulnerable than you are, and they may not be able to simply shake off cold. If you've got symptoms of a respiratory infection, try to reduce your mixing as much as possible in order to prevent transmission. You know, work from home if you can, and if you can't, try to wear a mask in busy environments, you know, wash your hands frequently. All these steps that we were taught to prevent transmission of COVID can be successfully applied for other respiratory infections. Thank you for that. You make some really important points there about respecting others who may be more vulnerable or who are struggling to shake off the long-term effects of ARIs that we might otherwise view as mild. So based on your finding, what more do you think that we could do? Would you recommend any clinical or policy changes or, for example, as you've alluded to, changing our personal habits? So I think what we really need is more research because there are still so many unknowns. So first, we need to better understand these conditions. And that means identifying the most common symptoms, examining their prevalence and trying to understand the mechanisms behind the condition. And that's already taking place with long COVID, but we need to really spread it out to all post-infection syndromes. And so in order to find effective treatments for these conditions and for long COVID, we first need to understand what's happening in the body to lead to these conditions. And we also need to identify the pathogens responsible as this might influence vaccine development. 
Similarly, if we can identify risk factors for these conditions, that could help us with vaccine prioritization. So the prior the prioritization for COVID vaccines was based on who was most likely to get severe disease. But as time has gone on, we've also seen that these vaccines protect against long COVID. So if you know that there is a pathogen that is likely to produce long-term symptoms in a particular group of people, that can be a really strong argument for those people to also be prioritized for vaccination. So a lot of the public is understandably ready to move on from COVID, but it's important that we personally take actions to prevent transmission when we feel sick. And it's also important that the research community doesn't lose from momentum. So we need to continue studying long COVID, not just to help the people affected, but because it will help us to understand post-infection syndromes more generally. Thank you for that insight, Julian. More research is definitely the key and I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And keeping COVID, you know, at the forefront of our minds and not necessarily um, thinking that we're past it is definitely important. So finally, please could you tell us about the next steps to follow this research and what do you personally plan on working on next? So we're currently in the process of collecting data to enable longitudinal analyses on post-infection syndromes more generally. For instance, we'd like to get a better idea of the duration of the long-term symptoms that we've identified as well as possible trajectories of recovery. And this is complicated by the fact that these long-term symptoms are hard to report. So our participants in Covidence UK are always asked whether they think they have long COVID, which is possible because the condition has a formal definition. However, long colds, long flus, other long-term symptoms, they're not as clearly understood. You know, we don't have a formal definition. So how can you ask somebody if they have it, if they meet certain criteria? These are all problems that make it difficult to collect data on these conditions. And that's why it's so important that research into this topic continues. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. A formal definition, as you say, definitely makes the research much easier going forward. And that's definitely something that we'd be plugging for. So thank you, Julia. It was really brilliant to talk to you today. And thank you, listener, for listening to this episode of eClinical Medicine in Conversation With. You can read the full paper associated with this podcast by clicking on the link in the show notes or by searching on lancet.com. Remember that you can also subscribe to listen to future episodes wherever you usually get your podcasts.